the mysterious disappearance of a 30-year-old mother has captivated residents of central Pennsylvania for over three decades. With potential connections to other unsolved crimes, a history of allegations made by local residents, and no new information from the Attorney General's office since they took over the case in 2018, small-town theories, conspiracies, and suspicions continue to run rampant today. This is the cold case of Barbara Miller. About last night, a true crime podcast. Welcome back to About Last Night. I'm your host, Anna Wiest, joined today by special guest, Scott Schaefer. Here's what we know so far. Barbara Miller disappeared on June 30th, 1989, after attending her best friend's wedding. She was reported missing five days later by her ex-boyfriend and lead suspect, Mike Egan. After almost 30 years of investigations that made way for no answers, the Pennsylvania Attorney General's office took over the case in 2018 and have revealed no new information since. Many locals believe that Miller's disappearance was connected to the homicide of Ricky Wolf three years prior. All right, guys, I just have a couple quick things to say before we get into this episode. First of all, I just wanted to let you know that Scott and I did record this outside, so if you hear some birds chirping in the background, that's why. Second of all, Scott is really passionate about this case, and I can see why, as he did spend 17 years of his life in prison. But just as a disclaimer, Anything that Scott mentions in this episode should be taken as his own opinion and not necessarily considered as fact. So, as I said, Scott's really passionate about this. Take it for what you will, but a lot of what he says in this episode is his opinion. Scott Schaefer spent 17 years in prison for a murder that he continues to claim he did not commit. In 1989, he, along with four other men, were arrested for the murder of Ricky Wolf. Seventeen years later, Rob Hummel recanted his testimony that Scott Schaefer and Billy Hendricks were involved in the crime. The two men were set free after pleading no contest to conspiracy to commit kidnapping and conspiracy to commit third-degree murder. Scott was arrested almost three years after Ricky Wolf had been murdered. On the morning he was arrested, he was unaware of what he was being accused of. Today we are here with a special guest, Mr. Scott Schaefer. So first, I just want to thank you for coming on the show with us and agreeing to be here. Um, I'm just going to give you the floor here. Tell us your story. All right. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. that all started May 9th, 1989. I was on my way to work, construction site out in East Juniata County. And 5.30 in the morning, all these aliens come out of the woods. <laughs> uh, it was the police, a Pennsylvania State Police. And I had no idea what was going on. It was the first time when they pulled me out of the car that I ever heard the name Ricky Wolf. And they were throwing papers in my face and telling me I killed him. I'm like, I don't even know who the hell you're talking about. They didn't care. They stomped my face into the ground, put the handcuffs on me, and dragged me down to the Stonington State Police Barracks. And there they sat there for a while, and they let me make a phone call to my dad. And uh, I told him to go get my car off the road and stuff. So 
my fiance wasn't scared and we just had a two month old uh, baby girl and uh he thought, was, he thought I was joking. He didn't believe me. So he's like, yeah, come on, Mosquito, where are you, where are you at? Where are you at? And I told him, ah, I'm telling you the truth, Dad. So instead of him going out and getting the car, he calls Colette and told her, and she freaks out. But I needed her too. She had to come out and get the car and needed an attorney. So that basically went from the Estonian State Police Barracks to the Milton uh, Magistrate's office where Magistrate Keir arraigned us. Me at the time, I didn't know who else was arrested. And they sent us to the Sunbury Community Hospital where they took hair, blood, and saliva for um, DNA comparison because they didn't have all oh, the similarities back then. They didn't have any actual, unless it was similarities. And they did all that. Next, they took a Seals Grove State Police Barracks, which they walked me past Billy Hendricks, who was a friend of mine who was sitting there like a hairball. His hair was all all down to his shoulders and he's bawling his eyes out and he's like 100 pounds and he he just looked at me and I don't know what's going on so then I seen another guy and I didn't know who it was and apparently that was turned out to be Mark Byers and he was arrested with the same thing I never met him before either but he was arrested for the homicide also and as it went as I'm reading the affidavit I wasn't only arrested for the murder I was the kingpin I was the ringleader I was the hitman they had me labeled as a martial arts hitman so that they, I was hired out to kill people. Somebody watched too many movies. But it went on from uh, me telling Colette, which was my fiance, and my mom and them, don't worry about it. You know, they got the wrong people. Uh, they they got to have evidence. There is no evidence. It wasn't there. Didn't do it. Well, as time passed, and they kept trying to get us with more and more, my, ex, my ex-girlfriend called my mom and says, Pat, which my mom says, uh, I have a receipt from that date, December 11th, 1986. We were in Harrisburg shopping. It's in my credit card that he bought you that I said. My mom goes, oh my God. Yeah, so she calls the jail and has me call home. And I haven't talked to Sue. It was a bitter, real bitter breakup. I mean, I had better handle her steering wheel and broke the shift in her car. I was really pissed off. But, and uh, for her to reach out was shocking. I thought she would love to see me sit in the electric chair. But she had the receipt. Well, in the meantime, we have to turn over any evidence to the uh, district attorney. Anything that's exculpatory so they can do an investigation into it. But what they did was, and this is how corrupt it was, they went and questioned her. But then they gave a piss test, found out she was on cocaine. Then they were going to arrest her boyfriend because they found coke. So they twisted her from telling the truth to now being against me, saying that I rushed her. It was odd for me when I went to go shop and made it look like I was using her as an alibi because I had it. There's no way I could have been there and at the murder scene. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, then she was, she set up a phone call for me to call. She called the jail and had me call her. And she says, and here at the whole time, I didn't know, but uh, they set up a, a voice recording with the Pennsylvania State Police wiretap. And I'm sitting there. Talking to her, and I'm, she's like, Well, what do you want me to do? What am I going to say? She says, Tell the truth. I said, you're, We're not telling anybody. I said, I'm not telling them what we have and what we're going to do. We had the receipt. I said, You're the key to me getting home. I said, You know where I was. And she's like, Yeah, but what she said, I was thinking the time was later. What do you want me to say? So she's warned me in. And I'm like, Listen, Sue, we know it was daylight when we got down there. The lights came on at the Wanamaker store before that. I remember that, but before, after we left Red Lobster. 
I said, I remember it now that you brought it to my attention. I couldn't remember where it was before, where we were before. So I remember the trip and you have the receipt that says that was the date. Yeah, but what do you want me to say? What if they say I'm lying? I'm like, are you not lying? You just, she says, but I think the time was later. She said, listen, just say it was earlier. Just say it was the time I'm telling you. I know I'm right. Because I told her to just say it was earlier, they arrested me for solicitation to commit perjury and came to the jail the next day and took me over and charged me with that. And they started questioning me about that. Well, then we had to really hustle because now, the, now if, if I can't prove the time, we can't get it. Well, Colette turned into a little uh, investigator herself where she went wild on finding things. So she started calling around. She says, what do you remember purchasing? I said, the nice set from Wanamaker's. She tracked down another receipt at the Wanamaker's computer banks in, in Virginia. They confirmed they had a receipt with a time and a date on it. And we couldn't get it in time for the trial. I'm heading down to uh, uh, Adams County to pick my jury because it's a sequestered jury. And we had to tell the district attorney. We said, listen, we need the state police to go down with a subpoena to get this. We have no idea what the time is on it. If it's what you guys are saying it is, use it against you. If it's what he's saying it is, turn it over to us. This was a Friday. Like my trial started Monday. So Sakavage, which is Robert Sakavage, and uh, Munzer, which is assistant district attorney, uh, John Munzer. They had a trooper run down and the uh, receipt said 1911, which is 7.11 p.m. And they held it for a whole day. They went over the weekend and picked it up and they took Sue Canals and pulled her in and pissed Esther and threatened her that what's going on, how is it, they drove from us. So they found out other stuff about her. So that they did is, they made her look like a liar. So she said she was taking classes at Susquehanna University at that time, and there was no records of it. So they made her out to be a complete and absolute nut on the stand. Now they're saying that she made the purchases, I was never there. And that's how they got away uh, around the receipt that was actually, that we mm -hmm. found. Now, how, how would I know about the purchase for the knives that Sue couldn't remember? Mm -hmm. That Colette tracked down with the date and time on, but I remember the lights coming on. So they knew I was telling the truth. They knew they were wrong. They even, even when uh, Rick Hummel, Rick Sinkley changed his name too because of his brother Rob, he was embarrassed at what he did, set us up. Rick put a phone uh, answering machine on his phone for when his brother called because his brother was calling and telling him we were innocent. He set us up. So he used code names like uh, I was Ace, uh, Tommy Oda was Biker, Billy was Fraley, Fraley, Fraley. And, uh, he told him, well, Ace is innocent, Biker's, Biker was there, and uh, Fraley's innocent. And he recorded this and took it down to the district attorney. The district attorney, attorney took the tape, told him, uh, pulled Robin, took Rob to Northumberland County, put it, the jail he was in, brought him to Northumberland County Jail and set him on the steps and said, if you do not stick to your story, we're going to go up there and put you in a cell with Scott Schaefer. I'm betting he didn't want to go in that cell. He testified. He was ready to testify then. And uh, the first one up was uh, Billy Hendrickson found guilty. But what the district attorney also did, he tried to get Rick Hummel to pose because they're identical twins, tried to get him to pose as Rob to set people up on drug buys. Like, hey, I just got out of jail. You know, I need to just get some quick money on the buy. Trying to set people up. This is how corrupt he is. There was no justice in it. There was just us. And he just wanted to win. He knew we didn't do it. He knew me and Billy. They held a piece of evidence, which is a bill of lading that Billy had from the Susquehanna University. This is how we actually got home. Uh, that showed that he was delivering mail at the time Rob Hummel said we were riding around collecting drug money in Billy's Blue Torino that Billy didn't buy until the next year. We didn't, Billy didn't own that Blue Torino, and they knew that. And still pressed ahead with the prosecution. But anyhow, 
They withheld that evidence. We got it anonymously in a PCR petition. When I finally passed a polygraph test, they had to hang their hat on something to get me out of there. So anonymously, that bill of lading was sent to Billy's attorney. No address, no nothing, just it showed up. And there was the evidence that they could say, newly discovered evidence and the fact that Rob Hummel changed his testimony now and said that there was pressure into testifying, they had to release us. Well, they didn't release us. And the whole backstory of that is the judge isn't supposed to be involved in the negotiation between the district attorney and the defense attorney. The judge was a three-way call, and I know because I was on a silent phone call in, in the, my counselor's office in prison that he had me on mute, and I got to listen to everything. The judge, Munzer, and the judge's rank, this judge rank, Munzer, and uh, my attorney, uh, Rose, uh, Rose, Burton Rose, thank God. Anyhow, uh, we're in a conversation, and the deal was they would accept a third-degree guilty plea. They would vacate the sentence, and the judge is in on this. He wants it to end right here. This is how it's going to end. They were going to vacate the the, uh, the life sentence, arrest us immediately for third degree homicide, give us a plea agreement if we pled guilty to third degree, which we would be eligible for parole immediately because I already had 17 years in. So it's a 10 to 20. So I'm already three years over my eligibility for parole and I can parole right out. Well, when we hung up the phone, I told Bert, I'm not pleading guilty to anything. I said, I'll plead no, no to contendere. I said, I'll plead no contest because I need to get home to fight this. I said, I lost my mother. She died and I wasn't allowed to go to the funeral. My dad's dying. I want to get home. And he says, okay, I'll see what they want to do. So pissily, Munzer brought the papers over and says, well, you got to scribble out everywhere. It says no to content or no, guilty and put no to contendere. I said, no problem. I sat there and wrote no to contendere and every place me and Billy had to sign. And Billy was mad. He didn't want to sign because he knew he had 100, 200 write-ups in the 17 years where he did most of his time in a hole for drugs. So he was hooked on drugs bad in there. And uh, he said, well, I'm not going to get right out. I said, Billy, you didn't fight as hard as I did. You partied the whole time. So you're signing it. I said, you're signing it. I'm not giving you a choice. And he said, I'll sign it. So anyhow, we signed it. And uh, we took the plea agreement, which the judge, it was illegal. And it was all bullshit. But it was... Uh, to get me out, get me home. I was supposed to get immediately see the parole board and get out. Well, when I came up to see the parole board, it took three months to see them. Uh, because first of all, they had to get the sentence and everything straightened out with the uh, Department of Corrections and, and the uh, criminal justice system wasn't jiving. They were saying that the sentence wasn't right. So I had to get that straight. It took three months. So I finally did see the parole board. They wanted me to write a version of the crime. I wrote a version of the crime. I was set up. I was framed. And I didn't do it. That's why I was proved in court. Denied me parole because I would not take responsibility for the crime. They gave me a year hit. Uh, and now this was, in, this was in violation of the plea agreement we had. So we sued the parole board. We won and the parole board had to give me another parole hearing. And, but I had to write my version according to the transcript. But what the parole board did is they had to see me again before the next year. They waited 11 months. So I sat there another 11 months. So there's already, there's 14 months down that I'm sitting there. So when they finally do see me, I have to write a version of how it happened. I just wrote it as the transcript said, and, and you know, and that I feel remorse on that. And I didn't, I mean, I feel bad for the family that happened. Well, I didn't do it though. I feel more for my family that they went through, my daughter and my parents and all. But anyhow, so they, they gave me a parole date and they, they drug it out. It was six months later. 
I knew my daughter, they knew my daughter's birthday. They listened to all your phone calls. My daughter's birthday was March 6th. It was 2006. And I was supposed to get out on the uh, 1st. And they pushed my parole date because they said they couldn't get in bed. They pushed it to March 26th after my daughter's birthday. So I couldn't be home for her 17th birthday. So, yeah, talk about how corrupt and bad things are. But other than that, I mean, it was, it was hell going through it. Scott Schaefer never met Barbara Miller, but it turns out she was an advocate for his justice way back in 1989. After Scott and the four other men were arrested, Scott's fiance received a voicemail from Barbara Miller. She told her that if Scott and Billy Hendricks weren't released at their pretrial hearings, she had evidence that would prove they were not involved in the homicide of Ricky Wolf. Corporal Bramhall was coming up and seeing me at the uh, Cole Township State Prison. We were working on the case together. He was trying to figure out the ins and outs, and he was trying to tie it into the Bob Miller case. And that's when I told him, I said, listen, the district attorney had a tape that my fiance got a phone call right before our preliminary hearing, me and Billy Hendricks, with this Barbara Miller, called and left a message at our answering machine that if we were not released and found innocent at the preliminary hearing, she was coming forward with evidence that would prove we were innocent. A week later, she was gone, disappeared. Took the tape to the district attorney. My attorney did. They turned it over as evidence. Nobody has seen it since. Nobody knows where the tape is. It's completely gone. How do you ever met Barbara Miller when you got that phone call? No, no, never met Barbara Miller a day in my life. I the only picture I ever seen of her was one he used in the paper, and, and to this day they say, "How did she get a hold of you?" Well, back in 1989, they had phone books. Yeah. Everybody's phone number was listed. So if you didn't have an unlisted number, all they did is look in a phone book. So I assume that's how she found it. We'll be back after this. At Sunbury Motor Company, the letters SMC mean a lot to us. Those letters stand for a tradition of trust since 1950. SMC stand for selling more cars and satisfying more customers. SMC. It stands for Sunbury Motor Company. And when you need a Ford, Hyundai, or Kia, you have our lowest price promise. Log on to sunburymotors.com to see more choices and save more cash. And then you can say, start my car. I'll take it. SMC. In the North 4th Street Auto Plaza, Sunbury, and routes 11 and 15, Hummel's Wharf. Scott spent 17 years in prison. He spent most of his time fighting for his freedom, lifting weights, and missing his daughter. So, 17 years in prison. Tell me about, like, the time that you spent there. It was, it was hard. I mean, it was, um, emotionally, it was the hardest thing to do that you're ever going to do. It isn't just uh, the loneliness you feel because you miss your family, your daughter, you know. It's excruciatingly lonely. And then there's the danger, you know, there's uh, 2,800 inmates moving on the, at, at, down the main line at the same time, go to chow go to gym or whatever, go to yard. And uh, I just stay myself. I worked out all the time. I went to gym, chow. And it was always, I used to think nobody believed in prison, belonged in prison. Now I believe 98% of them belong there. Uh, so they're criminals and they're hustlers. So they're always trying to get something, steal something, uh, shake someone down. So, yeah, there were a lot of scraps, a lot of scrapes. There was uh, a lot of confrontations. I, I had no problem getting in fights, scrapping. And I, that's another thing. I never had the DC-141 the whole time I was in there, which is a, a write-up. And I didn't, I was no angel. I got in fights. And, you know, it's just the fact they had cameras. They see I didn't start it. They see I didn't do it. You know, but it was uh hardest part visits, you know, when 
the family would come visit. It was great when they leave it. it just rip your heart out, especially my daughter. Uh, by the time I finally got to uh, Cole Township, it was uh, she was six. This first I really got to hold her and see her. They held me for three and a half years in the county before they even sentenced me. So I sat down in that little county jail for three and a half years in a little stink infested shithole. And uh, I could just hold her on the table. But then upstate, you could, you know, I could hold her on my lap, you could eat and sit there and, and talk and play. And she couldn't understand why I was there and you know, why I'm not going with her when she left. You know, that was heartbreaking. And they would tell her about it, what's, you know, that we're fighting. And she'd always say, when you come home, daddy, I'd say, soon. And by the time she was like 11 or 12, she started going, soon, it's a long time. You know, and it caused a big rift with us from when I got out too. So there was resentment when I finally did get out. And she's 17 years old and she's hormonal and she's mean. And, uh, you know, we didn't get along very well. And I tried everything I could, but she is dead set on doing what she did. You know, she had a rough life. I mean, her dot, her mom died of a drug overdose eventually. And uh, that was all because of this. Her mom lost her mind when I was arrested. And she was stuck with a two-month-old and her five-year-old son. And there's all, all the household bills. And she didn't work. I worked. So, and she fought for over a year, year and a half every day to try to get me out. And, you know, finally she gave up and turned to drugs. And that's went down that road. So did, you know, my, my daughter and my stepson. I call him my stepson, Davey. Uh, they all turned to drugs. It was their way of dealing with everything. And now, a quick word from our sponsors. The America's Hose Company has been serving Sunbury and the surrounding community since 1893. Today, they respond to emergencies with multiple ambulance crews and a tower within the Sunbury Fire Department. Their social club is a hot spot for many Sunbury locals looking for a relaxed environment and a home-cooked meal after a long day on the job. Their menu offers the classics along with a new special every day at an affordable price for the whole family. Come and enjoy yourself for good food, good drinks, and good friends. Despite the justice system's persistence in having him convicted of the crime, Scott has always cooperated with police and voluntarily took eight polygraphs, all of which he passed. And to this day, uh, the uh, any state cop, state police officer, any of the AG ever asked me to come and talk to them, and I have. They've called me in already and, uh, when they were trying to, this the Edkins case from before the Ricky Wolf murder. I willingly went in and sat down and talked to them. I sat down with Tim Miller. I brought witnesses in and sat with them in the interview room in a camera so that we could get more information, more evidence to prove I'm innocent who did it. And that was for the Barb Miller case and the Ricky Wolf case. That one was actually for the Barb Miller case. But I know the two are, are tied in. That's why I want the evidence tested. I've never once refused and I've always cooperated to get this evidence out there. Uh, I mean, another point is uh, eight polygraph tests I passed. Elmer Criswell is number one in the nation. He's on over 8,000. He trains the Navy, he trains the Pennsylvania State Police, he trains the police all over the United States. It's the most renowned polygraphs it is. I asked them when they, when uh, District Attorney, uh, were, was it Rosini asked me to take a polygraph? I said, okay. He said, but I had to pay for it. I said, who's the best? And he said, Elmer Criswell. Well, we tracked him down. We hired him. 
and he came to the state prison. He came in, he goes, and I said to him, I said, listen, it's cold in here and I'm nervous. He said, none of that will factor. He said, we'll calibrate the machine, the, the climate and your nervousness. He said, and he said, trust me, I've done thousands and thousands and thousands of these. So, excuse me. And uh, I said, okay, so we, we did the, uh, the passive test and he told me he answered negative to every question. And he had me do a positive every question. Then he calibrated the machine to the truth and the lie. And they had me lie to the questions so he could calibrate when I was lying. And then we did a three-tiered polygraph test, it's called, which he asked me the same questions in different orders and, and different scenarios. And I had to answer no to every one. Well, we got finished with the second segment. He put the thing down. He said, I'll tell you what, I've only ever had one other man in had life in, in prison pass a polygraph test. He says, before we start the third one, he says, you're innocent. He said, make sure I get a ticket to your coming home party. I sat there, I was, so I blew right through the third one. That was no problem. Well, this wasn't good enough for assistant district attorney, Tony Rossini. He wanted more. So you had voice stress analyzation experts come down from Wilkes-Barre, two of them. And it's another type of polygraph where they measure your tension in your throat when you're speaking and your voice, if it quivers. Uh, they gave me two beginner tests, they called them, passed them both. And they checked the machines, they didn't think they were right. Three more actual, passed them all. And it's it's only 35% of people ever pass them. I mean, all the three in a row, I passed five. So there's eight polygraph tests that I passed. And finally is when the PCR petition came up and they still, what they didn't, they didn't grant me the petition the evidentiary hearing on the evidence I had in the petition, they granted it because every time at the end of my PCRA petition, when I was sending it back and forth, I would ask for an attorney to be appointed due to the fact that I was, uh, I lacked the law intelligence. I know there's a word for it now, but I'm tired of working. <laughs> there's, <laughs> I, I, I lacked the intelligence to carry it out myself. But well, in PCRA petitions, in the very first petition, they have to appoint you an attorney. They denied me all three times. So when it got superior court, that's what got me the evidentiary hearing. Not what they, they and they were pissed because that's, they didn't want to get back there. So once it got back there, Graham Hall and his parole and Rick, uh, Rob Hummel's parole officer, uh, put a pinch on Rob Hummel. My nephew came up to see me in prison and told me that Rob was coming in and out with his girlfriends in Northumberland and my nephew was seeing the daughter. He had a stipulation was allowed in Northumberland County where Rich Graham Hall, Corporal Graham Hall, and the PO set it up for Rob to come in. Or set it up. So when Rob came in, they pinched him, they got him. His first thing he said, I'm look, he said, I'm done with this. He says, Scott Schaefer didn't do it, Billy Hendricks didn't do it, I didn't do it. He said, I was forced to say all this. The district attorney threatened me with the death penalty, threatened my brother. He says, I, I was scared to death. He threatened to put me in a cell with Scott Schaefer. He says, Those guys didn't do it. He said everything I said was a lie. Very first thing he told them, Richard Bramwell told me to prison. And so after passing my lie detector's test and having all this, finally they agreed then the third degree deal and to get me out of there. Mm -hmm. and they, they reluctantly did it. They didn't want to get Billy out because he was so bad on drugs. And, uh, but they had to because if they turned well, they were trying to pull a drug from Although he never met Ricky Wolf or Barbara Miller, Scott connected with both Timmy, Ricky Wolf's son, and Eddie, Barbara Miller's son. Both men believe that Scott is innocent and are fighting for justice right alongside him. Didn't you, like, get in contact with Ricky Wolf's son then? Oh, yeah. I was writing that um, Timmy Wolf and uh, 
also Eddie Miller, while I was in there, and I promised him that I would find out who murdered their father and their mother. And he wrote me back and he believed me and he, and he became friends. We wrote for a while. The, other, the rest of his family didn't believe me. His sister didn't believe it. Uh, I still don't know what they do. I, I really don't care. It's, uh, I mean, it's, I did everything I could to prove I didn't do it. I'm still trying to prove who did it and f for them, but for me. So I, everybody knows that I didn't do it. And I also want to do it for Timmy and Eddie because I promised them. But uh, Timmy actually came into the county jail on a, on a marijuana charge. And my nephew, Sean, was down there. And, and my nephew, Sean's a walking wall. He's, he's big, real big guy. And he come up and goes, I love your Uncle Scott. He says, that guy, he's fighting hard for my dad. He said, I hope he gets out. And so, and when I did get out, we met and got together and came to all the hearings, PCRA hearings, and met Eddie Miller. And uh, they came to all the hearings and uh, helped with the investigation. Tim Miller was still involved with it. Scott like most of our community, had high hopes when Tim Miller took over the investigation. He clearly respects all of the work and efforts that Tim put into both the Wolf and Miller cases. But since then, there seems to have been little progress. So Richard Bram Hall kept notes and he did codes because he didn't trust what was going on. And when he passed away, Tim Miller ended up breaking his codes and, and getting into it. So we found out even more what was going on. And... Now the AG has it and they're fighting me tooth and nail with 21 pieces of evidence to be tested from the Rickerbrook murder scene that would absolutely prove who did it and that I didn't. More so, who did it? Mm -hmm. Why don't they want to know? They're fighting me. Well, we just got denied in the state Supreme Court. Uh, they refused to test it on technicality and it's their, their technicality is wrong because we did it according to law. I mean, with Tim getting involved, when he became chief of police, I absolutely thought that was the the end of it. I thought we were going to get to the finally. I think a lot of people thought that. Yeah. I think everybody thought that was it. And when the circumstances arose that he ended up leaving, uh, it kind of, everything came to a halt. We'll be right back. Chris Reese is not your average insurance agent. He's your neighbor. He's a coach for your child's sports team. He is the loyal customer of your local small business. Chris Reese is an insurance agent who wants to support you as well as your community. He wants to help protect you from the risks of everyday life while also helping you realize your dreams. Offering personal and small business insurance as well as financial services, Chris Reese, State Farm Insurance Agent. For more information, call 570-495-4556 or email chris at sunburyinsurance.com. I wanted to get Scott's input on some people that we have talked about a lot in this season so far. Kathy Reichenbach, Mike Egan, Harry Catherman. Scott pretty much ran in the same crowd as some of these people, so I wanted to get his take on them. So some of the other players in the Barbara Miller case that like we've talked about in the season so far, Mike Egan, Kathy Reichenbach, Harry Catherman. Did you know personally any of those players? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I knew them most. I know Mike when he was a cop and Kathy Reichenbach, Kathy Egan is Mike's sister. Right. She was involved with Harry Catherman and they were all involved with Tom Yoder at one time. And uh, One of the other who was arrested. Tom Yoder was yep. also arrested and acquitted. Yeah. Uh, he was he was one of the two. Him and Mark Byers were acquitted. Me and uh Billy Hendricks were found guilty and, and the charges against uh God, I'm gonna forget his name. I think it's Matt Heimball was the charges were dropped against him. 
Yeah, they, uh, I knew Kathy Egan. My brother Tim used to date the sister Deb Egan. And Billy and I actually, when we used to run around and dabble in the drugs ourselves, we hung out with Kathy Egan and Harry Catherman sometimes. Not much, but, you know, just to know them. We knew them. We'd go to their house and stuff like that. Uh, Mike Egan, I never associated with. Never had any time for him. Never liked him. I didn't like him as a cop. I didn't like him as a crooked cop. I didn't like him as a criminal. We've talked about also some of the weird kind of shit that went on with Judge Sam Rank owning Kathy Reitenbach's house. And you said Judge Sam Rank was the presiding judge over your case? Oh, absolutely. He, he's the judge over all, all the cases that were heard. And not only did he own her house, he had personal dealings with Kathy Egan. And How so? Well, I was told that was the, the, to pay the rent. It mm-hmm. was how it went down with you know him and her uh now that's coming from people that know him you know and that's you know he knew he knew what was going on right knew that there was drugs and stuff being sold through that house and but the, the house that when we were me and tim miller and uh francis garcella were doing the investigations that uh we had the cellar dug out and the walls tested is the same house that rank owned that mm-hmm. kathy Egan lived in mm-hmm As these cases and their connections have gained media attention, Scott has taken the initiative to get involved and make himself known in the community and surrounding areas. So especially in the past couple years, both of these cases, the Miller case and the Wolf case, have gained a lot of media attention. So how have you taken that and how have you like become involved in that? Well, I guess it has, that's a peculiar situation i was dating a girl who was tending bar at the elks i know her my entire life and um there was a friend of hers that was up there and i said i went up giving her grief because she couldn't get off work well he says well, i'll take the bar for you it's francis Garcella, the reporter i never met him before and he said i'm like well yeah she said there you go lisa so we can get out of here she goes yeah i got you go ahead and she was like all happy so we got out of there and then we went down to the uh Edison Hotel and we're sitting there talking and she goes, she goes, you know, that's Francis Garcella from the Daily Item. He has a book deal right now and I'm just trying to get my book out. I said, really? She says, let me call him. She says, and he come down and talk to us. So she set it up for Francis to come down. We sat there and he was telling me about the uh, the deal he had with a book and uh, the thing he had going on with the Miranda Barber case that we were going to do a series with it. And I'm like, well, that's, you know, fascinating. All I'm trying to do is get this truth out there, get this evidence told us and the best way I'm going to do this with the book. And uh, I gave him the book to read, and uh, he came back, and he, he liked it. He said, it needs tweaked. I said, well, yeah. I said, I graduated high school, not college. And uh, he became a really good friend. I mean, it got to the point where he really got involved in after reading this about the corruption. He really started looking into it. And the more he looked into it, the more interest came out. And he really started pushing the, uh, the issue and, and why isn't this being answered? Why isn't this being answered? Why was this covered up? Why hasn't nobody addressed this ever? And to the point where I'm telling him what happened, what went on, and he's like, why did they? And I'm like, I don't know. He said, well, I'll find out. And he started finding out. He started. And uh, then your father, Joe Weist, stepped up. And uh, he says, give me a dollar. I said, here's a dollar. So what's that for? He said, you just retained me. I'm now your attorney. I'm like, okay. I said, and then he... Tim Miller comes into the picture and it was like uh, three musketeers. We started tearing everything up to get to it. And it was going great. 
I mean, fantastically great that mm -hmm. things are being overturned and uh, the up until the point where we're supposed to have the PCR hearing for the evidence to be tested and uh, Judge Saylor was supposed to hear it when the AG stepped up and said because the cases were connected that he had too close of a too co too close of a connection that he should recuse himself. And being an honorable person, Judge Saylor is, he says, you're right. Uh, he says, you're right. I'm going to. I, I want to appoint the, uh, suggest who gets appointed to the case. So he uh, had Judge Clark appointed, and the hearing couldn't have went any better than we ever wanted. I mean, it was, um, he kept asking the district attorney, or the uh, uh, attorney general, why, why won't you test the evidence? It's, it's there. They meet the criteria. Uh, they filed the PCR petition timely. The whole nine yards, he was all, he said, and the last, he was ready to rule, and he says, hold on, so I'll give you 30 days, he says for you to the attorney general, for you to give me a reason, he says, but I want you to get prepare yourself to be disappointed. He said this, I mean, we're like cheering, we're all happy, mm -hmm. you know? And COVID, COVID hit. Everything got shut down, everything got pushed back. Judge Clark filed for unemployment. That's a no-no, I guess, because then he got kicked off all the cases. And I got a judge who was uh, Judge Anderson, Dudley Anderson. Great guy. I'm joking. He's not. Totally sided with the AG. Totally drew our case to the, to the wall. Didn't care. Uh, denied us. Uh, we filed the Superior Court. Same thing. Denied us. Filed the Supreme Court. I'm used to that. I filed... If you know how many petitions I filed in prison and got denied, and each one took 18 months to go through the whole system. So you do, do, do the math. There was a lot of times I sat and waited and waited. Well, then finally I was over one year's time limit, which meant I was time barred, which meant I could do, file no more petitions, which meant I had no way to get out of prison. So for this to fall through, I was already out of prison. I'm like, I can still wait and still keep fighting. At least last time I threw everything under the bed and I ran for two years. When I just ran the track and lifted and said to hell with everything, I started fighting again. But uh, yeah, so we got denied and we still have the evidence there waiting. It's sitting in a Pennsylvania State Police locker room. Needs to be tested. We need to put the finger on those who did it, show the corruption of those who covered it up, who knew what happened, and bring justice to the Wolf family, the Miller family, and my family. So the Pennsylvania Supreme Court denied your petition to have the evidence retested. Yes. So what's next? Well, the rumors are, and you know the rumor mill, uh, that there's a grand jury that was convened in February and is an investigation into the Barbara Miller case with the connection to the Ricky Wolf case. This reason the attorney general took over the case. So, and I personally know of people who were called down to testify and we're banking on, trust me when I say banking on it, we're hoping for it because I don't bank in the system that much, but we're hoping for them to do the right thing. And if they just want the feather in the hat and test it themselves and say they have enough evidence, I'm happy with that, do it. I don't have to be the guy that brought it out. I just want it out. I just want the true rumors to be true that they're doing the grand jury and finally getting ready to arrest the right people. You guys heard it. This is Scott Schaefer's story right from him himself. I know that there was a lot of legal jargon going on in this episode, so next week, Scott's attorney and my dad, Joel Wiest, will be joining us to explain the legal aspects of both the cases of Ricky Wolf and Barbara Miller.
produced by Harv Productions, LLC.